Do you love comics, movies, video games, and more? We do too. Come tune in to Josh and our cast of colorful co-hosts on Talking Smack. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Try to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Huh? My duty car. You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> the Cult Worthy Classic. A cinema podcast dedicated to obscure film and cult classics made before 1970. Your host, Antonio Palacios, and a weekly guest will deep dive into these films to prove that they are, in fact, cult-worthy. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the Cult-Worthy Classic. My name is Antonio Palacios, and this is my brand new podcast dedicated to obscure film and cult classics made before 1970. And to kick off episode one, we picked an amazing first movie. We are doing The Bad Seed. Now this 1956 psychological drama, written by Johnny Lee Martin and directed by Marvin Leroy, is one of the most influential films of the 1950s, daring to tackle the subject of an evil child and asking the question, is evil learned or inherited? So based on the play by Maxwell Anderson, it tells the tale of Rhoda Penmark, an eight-year-old girl with blonde pigtails who is the picture of perfection to her parents, Kenneth and Christine. Now all of the grown-ups that surround her find her to be an intelligent, mature, yet self-absorbed little girl that knows what she wants and isn't afraid to ask for it. Now her mother, Christine, has raised suspicions about her daughter's perfection as the sudden and tragic death of one of her schoolmates uncovers Rhoda's inner workings, having been found to be in possession of the Dead Boy's Penmanship Award. Now, as the curiosities of Rhoda's teachers and the Dead Boy's parents begin to revolve around the perfect little girl, Christine begins to dig deeper into the roots of Rhoda's dismissive personality, and whether or not she's capable of murder. Now to complicate the matter, the groundskeeper of the apartment building, a sociopath himself, taunts and teases Rhoda relentlessly, eventually learning that she may have had more to do with the little boy's death than previously thought. So how will Christine handle the situation, especially after learning that she herself may have been the actual daughter of a known serial murderer? Now, today we will deep dive into this classic tale of murder and lies and answer the question, is it cult-worthy? And joining me on this exciting episode is my friend, Nikki E., host of the Here's Looking at You film podcast. So, enough of my yammering, let's start the show. And we're here with Nikki E. Welcome. Hello. How are we? We're excellent. <laughs> Thank you so much for being my first guest on this first episode of the Cult Worthy Classic. So happy to be here and to be on the first episode. It's like the greatest honor that I could ever hope to have. So thank you. You're flattering me. So... <laughs> We both started our podcast like within a week of each other, like right at the same time. And you were one of the very first people that I connected with on Twitter. And 
I really didn't listen to a whole bunch of cinema podcasts because I didn't want to become jaded or attached to like a certain format. I wanted to sound original, but I listened to yours repeatedly because you are so far across the board than what I am that I could actually enjoy it and feel like I wasn't like pilfering your style. And just so you can give like a description to the listeners that don't know you, you have what you call a vintage cinema podcast, which I think is fantastic because I have this issue with the labeling of films like classic films or old movies, because not all old movies are classics, but I consider them classic films. It's like we wouldn't call classical music old music. Like we need to give them some more respect in how we, we label them. And vintage cinema is just so amazing. I'm so glad you use that. Absolutely. I I think it fit for the all-encompassing time period that I was going for because when people think of classics, classics can mean a number of different things for a number of people, you know? Um, But vintage just generally means it's got some age on it. But, you know, vintage wines, vintage clothing, vintage uh, fashion, it's still, even if it's old, it still has like a sort of like a hefty... Appeal and style with a little bit of wear and tear that makes it interesting. Exactly. So we want to just give our respect to everything from the cult classics to the everybody knows them films to the, you know, B or C films, because they all have their place in film. And you know what? I honestly feel like no film is bad. There is something to enjoy in every film. So... Even for films uh, that people intentionally try to make bad, there's always a little bit of gold in there. You just got to know what to appreciate and look for. So, so Nikki, what is like your film history? What made you get into a vintage cinema and want to be a podcaster about it? Yeah, so my uh, love for vintage cinema started with my mom. My mom was actually born, she, she, she was born in 1944. So she is well up there in age. And so growing up with her, her films were always the older films. Her shows were always older shows. And um, so when other people were watching, you know, 90210 or, you know, the other 90s things, I was watching Hitchcock films with my mom. And um, so, and I grew to love them in a different way than my mom did because I was younger and I had a different perspective on them. And I can remember being in like high school and college and trying to explain the plot of some of these films to my friends. And they would be like, I don't even need to see the movie. I I just want to listen to you talk about them. And this has been happening since I was, you know, like 20, like 15 years ago, I started doing this. And the more I did it, the more, and when podcasts started to become a thing, people were like, you should just do a podcast about this. Like, I don't, like, I would just listen to you talk about movies all day. Like, I don't even really need to see the movie. You kind of make me want to see it, but also like, I just listen to you. <laughs> and um, so I mulled about it for a while. I thought about doing a YouTube channel. I, you know, and eventually um, to, to be 100% transparent, I went through a breakup. And when I went through the breakup, I decided I wanted to have something to do that didn't have to do with a man. Mm. And so um, I was like, cause I don't want to go dating. I don't want to be in a place where I'm going to be like meeting people that much. And I was like, you know what? There's a bunch of old movies that I would like to watch again. 
and I'd like a reason to watch them. And a podcast seemed like a good way to do that. So Here's Looking at You Film was born. And I love the title. I love the show. And like I said, you have such a unique voice when talking about these films. I could just, again, like you said about me, I, I hate listening to me. I love listening to you tell the story because it's from a completely different angle. And I just absolutely love that. So again, thank you for having your podcast. Thank you for coming on to mine. And I really hope that we draw people to both our, our shows because they are very different and unique from each other, but I feel they're complimentary in the fact that we both love films and we both look deeper than the story itself. Yeah, I almost feel like there are, if there's ever some points where we end up crossing over films, I would definitely send people to your podcast along with mine for those crossovers because our perspectives um, really do complement each other really well, yeah. even from different coasts. And I hope that this show does that because my other show, I'm talking about slasher films and monster <laughs> movies, but that's why I decided to make this one because I didn't feel I was giving the respect to these films when I was like putting them in with a slasher from the eighties, you know? So I do respect the classical films that I want to give them their due respect. So, and here we are. Here we are. Episode one. Episode one of many, I hope, and not the last episode with you for sure. I've already got a few up my sleeve. I'm going to send your way very soon for, for the future episodes. So the bad seed. She might get kind of lonesome with that soldier boy hair gone. I wish she were mine. Every time I look at her, I wish I had just such a little girl. This has been a terrible tragedy for Mrs. Daigle as she's lost her only child. That know-it-all Monica breed love. I don't think nobody knows anything but her. He has the mind of an eight-year-old, but he's managed to produce a family, so I keep him on. Me those shoes back. Oh, no, I got them shoes here where nobody but me can find them. Better give me those shoes, they're mine. Give them back to me. I believe you did it. What do you give me if I give you a basket of kisses? <laughs> I'll give you a basket of hugs. This is a first time watch for you. Yes, I am. You know, it's so funny. You recommended it to me. I said, you know, I was like, I, I have not seen this, but. Um, well, and we'll get into, obviously we'll get into this a little bit later, but I had just watched, I don't know if you've ever seen recently, there's a movie, um, we have to, we need to talk about Kevin. Yeah. With, uh, Tilda Swinton. Yes. And when you recommended this, I had just seen that and no spoilers, but it was like the twilight zone that you, you had recommended this yeah. movie to me because I was like, wow, that's very interesting. The kind of like crossover there but go ahead well and that's and that's the thing about this film is that there are there are people who have seen it i don't think they realize how influential it really is it's 1956 we're not seeing films about and i've already warned people that this is a deep dive therefore there will be spoilers and i've already given them a fair warning like a whole week's advance to watch this movie so <laughs> if uh, if you don't want to be spoiled hit pause watch the movie come back and finish the conversation. But influential in the one of the first films that really introduces a sociopathic, psychopathic, murderous child. 
And not only that, one that is hidden under the veil of sweetness and innocence, which makes it even more disturbing. Absolutely. This like blonde, sweet girl that like I and it's interesting that now from a 2022 lens, I think any movie that we watched where we meet a girl who's like that from the beginning, we would be like, ah, she's a mess yep. immediately. But from the, a lens of 19 of the 1950s, I mean, little girls acted like that. And that was like perfectly acceptable. And she fit into the role of a, you know, a 1950s like sweet cherry pie girl. Exactly. What you saw on TV, what you saw in commercials, what you would read about in like etiquette books. She was like the perfect picture of what a little girl in 1956 should be. Absolutely. And I mean, um, interesting to me, well, the more most interesting part to me was the amount of psychology that they talked about mm -hmm. in the movie, but to have all of this quote unquote psychological knowledge, but to not be able to recognize like these symptoms in this in this little girl. They're talking cool. about the the ghost is in the room and they're talking <laughs> about it, but they don't realize it's there. A hundred percent. Like, it's a very, very well-written script. So it was based off of a novel. Screenplay was actually based on a play. By the the play was written by Maxwell Anderson. The screenplay was written by John Lee Marvin. And it's very close to the source material. And there's lots of different ways that people can, like, look at it from a, like I said, like you said, 2020 lens. The, the, it's kind of obvious now, if, if you see the movie now, it's not very surprising, like you said, when the twist comes at the end. Actually, the twist comes rather early. The twist comes kind of really like mid-movie, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you get to, you get to take the journey, because really, it's the mother's story. It's Christine's story, played by Nancy Kelly, who was just fantastic in this film. And this was the last movie that she made. She was a theatrical actress. She had done some film work before, but she kind of went out on a high note with this one. Got an Academy Award nomination and then was just done. So she really plays this part amazingly. It's her story. Rhoda, the daughter, played by the fantastic Patty McCormick. So amazing in this film. Amazing. <laughs> Like so she amazing for a child. For a child. She is the villain, although she is not villainous to her mother. Like the, the, the villainy of the film is the mother's emotions and trying to protect her child, who in reality is a monster. It's almost and it's it's really interesting how much blame she immediately takes on to herself. Yeah. Um, like as soon as she starts like to put the pieces together. She starts to think about how she thinks she's adopted. And she thinks it may have something to do with her history, her genes. Her, like, and, and instead of thinking like, like, like um, the psychologist said, sometimes children are just bad seeds. And that would be, you know, the normal way that most parents would think about it. This kid is just bad. Like I, I had nothing to do with this, but she took it on 100% and, and, and really, like, even knowing what a monster her child was, was so eager to protect her because it was her, you know, her seat. And I think it also kind of speaks to 50s repression, where the female opinion really didn't matter much. Because it kind of feels like she has felt this way her entire life. She's had these daydreams. She's had these nightmares. She even remembers the name that she was given as a baby. But she never speaks up about it her entire life until she starts recognizing 
the evil in her daughter and knows that things aren't well. And she's like, okay, well, now I'm going to talk about it when she's really been feeling this way her entire life. And um, it it really is interesting, the her sort of unraveling juxtapositioned next to Monica, who is this like very put together, um, pristine woman of the time who even like at the beginning when she's giving um when she's giving Rhoda that gift and and Rhoda says oh well can I keep both stones and she's like oh she's a girl who knows what she wants like it's 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 it seems great great to her that this little girl is like so perfect and so sure of herself and and even thin she lets her have another popsicle because she's not fat <laughs> it's all of these like all of these like th things that like were the, the things that identified you as a woman of the time like wanting to have money wanting to be taken care of having a good body you know being having a perfect curtsy while also being a sociopath and exactly and, you know, here I am, you know, I'm a male, but stop me if I'm wrong. I get the idea that this film is actually very empowering in the female aspect as it's full of strong and intelligent and educated women. The men in this film, which there's very few of, like this is a female-driven story. The men are mostly educated betas. And that's not a slap on educated betas because I'm a proud educated beta. You know, I, <laughs> I, I stand by that 100%. But I think it's written that way to really push how strong the females in this film are. Dedicated they are to their children. How dedicated they are to their, I mean, Monica Breedlove, the, the landlady of the apartment building that the family lives in. It's her show. She runs the show. She runs everything. She has no problem bossing the groundskeeper, Leroy, who we'll talk about later around like mm -hmm. she's very strong-minded the teacher miss fern she's only in the film for five minutes but she's very strong-minded she's protecting her asset which is the school from scandal and from investigation and then you have the uh, amazing performance of hortense daigle the mother of claude one of the most fantastic performances i've ever seen in a film she plays the entire her whole role is intoxicated She's grieving and she's intoxicated and it is just fantastic. It's heartbreaking. And most of the time when I see people who are drunks in movies, there really is kind of like a stereotype of like the bar fly or the really sloppy drunk or the like hiccupy sort of like falling all over things, sweaty drunk. Here she plays a woman who would probably be a very fun woman to be around when she's sober, who probably doesn't drink that much in her day-to-day -day life. And here she is fighting the grief of the death of her son, which we'll get into later. And the only way that she can operate and actually get the investigation going and asking those hard questions of these people is if she's drunk. She, I mean, and the the moment when she goes to speak um, Rhoda's mom the second time and um, her husband comes to pick her up and she cries and says we have to go home and there's that realization that like she does not want to because home is like where where her family is where Claude was like and she really feels like she cannot rest until she figures out what's going on and it the most heartbreaking thing is it doesn't seem like she's blaming Christine 
or blaming Rhoda. She just feels like she knows something and she just wants to know something. And that's the most hurtful thing that they yeah. do know something and they just can't tell her. She's looking for some kind of closure and she knows it's there and she knows that they're hiding it. And I think that's what hurts her even more because I think she actually respects Christine for protecting her daughter because she would probably be doing the exact same thing if it was her in that position. So it's like one mother to another mother who there's a mutual respect there, even though there's like a boundary that neither of them are willing to cross. And they know that they can't and they and they won't. And that's what being a good mother is, is not not crossing that. A hundred percent. So, yeah, the female cast, we got Nancy Kelly as Christine. We've got Patty McCormick as Rhoda. Evelyn Varden as Monica Breedlove, who is like the third most prominent female in the film. Aline Eckhart as Hortense Daigle, which to me is like the scene-stealing performance in a film full of scene-stealing performances. Yeah. There's a lot to be said about that. And then you've got the male cast, you know, and like I said, they're really small. You've got her father, Richard Bravo, who is an investigative journalist of murders and writer. We kind of discover her history through in the third act through her father's involvement of researching a female serial killer some 30, 40 years earlier that ends up, you know, kind of tying the story together on why Rhoda is the way she is. And then, like I said, then we got these these educated psychologists and other teachers, and they have these little cocktail parties where they talk about psychiatry and analysis. And that's all just exposition, like you said. That's kind of like talking about what we're really seeing in Rhoda, but the whole time Rhoda's right there doing it, but no one notices it except Christine until like the third act. Exactly. And Christine, you can tell, has been sort of uncomfortable and panicked about Rhoda for a while. Mm -hmm. And she's kind of felt like there has always been something kind of strange about her, but has also like just like to have a liked daughter, you know? Cause in society, like that's what you'd want. You'd want a daughter that everybody thinks is perfect. And like Rhoda is like the perfect girl. I mean, mothers know. I, yeah. I, I mean, you, I, you would have to. And obviously she's the apple of her father's eye. So he's not gonna see it. And I mean, you can even see in Christine's father who is her, you know, adoptive father that fathers are just, they just dote on their daughters. They don't care. They just want their daughters to have the world and end up marrying a nice man and live in a nice house. Right. But mothers know. And it's and it's this interesting, interesting thing where like Monica, who is this very smart landlady, but is not a mother, can't recognize what's happening with Rhoda, who she sees all the time. Exactly. And let's speak about the father for a second. Like there's kind of like an imbalance of power there. I feel like he's always gone. But when he's there, you know, he's he wears the pants. He's Rhoda's his little angel, perfect little angel. Christine kind of takes a, a step back. But it sounds like he's gone quite often. So, again, that imbalance of power, that imbalance of responsibility is one of the reasons why Rhoda has probably been able to do all these things for so long is because there really is never one solid set of eyes on her all the time. And the kind of disruption of the family unit is probably also feeding her, her sociopathology and her need for attention, her need to be perfect. And it just kind of like all boils together. And it's interesting how she knows very well how to, hold it together in front of her mother, 
in front of Monica, in front of her father, even in front of Miss Fern, who obviously recognizes that something is off about her as well. But the, and I know we'll talk about it later, but the one person that she does not hold it together in front of is Leroy. And like, there's something about that. So we'll get into that. So kind of just give like a (laughs) quick synopsis of the film, just basic story structure, act one, introduction of the characters, and the idea that Rhoda is very perfect, but knows what she wants, like according to Monica. And then you've got the groundskeeper, Leroy, who just gets a kick out of pissing Rhoda off because he knows that he can. And it's almost as if he doesn't even worry about getting fired. He just enjoys pissing this little girl off because I feel, again, he has like that same kind of imbalance of power in his personal life. No one really likes him and no one really gives him attention, but she fights back. And that's what gets him going. And that's what keeps him bugging her. Rhoda goes to a school picnic and she's very disappointed because she didn't win a penmanship medal at school. Another boy in class did named Claude Daigle. All of a sudden there's a, a story on the radio while Christine is having lunch with her friends about a young boy being drowned at the picnic that Rhoda is attending with her school. So now we jump into act two. Rhoda's just very dismissive about the death of this boy while all the teachers and all the classmates are, are freaking out. Hers response is, "Can I have a peanut butter sandwich?" He didn't die. I mean, I didn't die. He did. Why am I worried about it? Why am I worried it? about it? You know. So Act Two is kind of like Christine wondering, "What is Rhoda's problem? Why isn't she concerned about this?" And that's when we are introduced to Miss Fern, who's like the headmistress of the school, asking about the penmanship medal. Has anyone seen it? Because Rhoda was witnessed trying to grab at it throughout the picnic, and when they found Cloud's body. It was gone. And that's when we're introduced to Hortense and her husband asking the same question. Where's the penmanship medal? We all have heard that Rhoda was after it. And then we go into act three where we're starting to see Rhoda starting to kind of break down with her lies. She's starting to understand that she actually is in some kind of danger, even though she takes no responsibility for it. She's burning her shoes that she supposedly beat Claude to death with. She's hidden the penmanship medal, and she's lying to everybody. And her mother's the only one that sees it. And so as the whole situation starts to deconstruct, and the mother is starting to realize that she has a history that she was not aware of, and that it kind of leads into why Rhoda the way she is, she has a tough decision to make. But that's how all three acts go together. So when we jump into act two, when we meet Leroy, played by Henry Jones, who, again, another scene-stealing performance. Like, this guy is just the best creep. To me, he's like the Freddy Krueger before there was a Freddy Krueger. I wrote down in my notes, I don't know, I kind of like Leroy. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of bothered me that I liked him, but I think it's just because it feels like he is so himself. Like, the way that he, like, I don't feel like I'm getting a fake version of Leroy. Um, I mean, obviously when he gets in front of Christine or Monica, he has to put on, you know, a workman's personality. But when he gets in front of uh, Rhoda or when he talks to himself, I feel like I'm getting 100% him. I'm getting all of his thoughts. And as weird as they might be, like, it's not pretend, you know? They have two very important scenes together. They are probably two of the best acted and most impressive scenes in the film. 
there's the first scene where he's kind of just teasing her while she's playing with her little playset out in the gazebo. There she is at a little table, playing with the little dishes, looking cute and innocent, looking like she wouldn't melt butter. She's that cool. Well, she can fool some people with that innocent look she can put on, put off whenever she wants to, but not me. Not even part way she can't fool me. Don't want to talk to nobody smart, huh? Like to talk to people she can fool, like a mama and Mrs. Breedlove and Mr. Emery. Here's some Excelsior for you. You talk silly all the time. I know what you do with the Excelsior. You made a bed of Excelsior down the basement, behind that old furnace. And you sleep there, where nobody can see you. I've been way behind the times heretofore. But now I got your number, miss. I've been hearing things about you that ain't nice. I've been hearing you beat up that poor little Claude Daigle boy in the woods, and it took all three of the Fern sisters to put you off him. I heard you run him off the wharf. He was that scared. If you tell lies like that, you won't go to heaven when you die. I heard plenty. I listen when people talk. Not like you, gab, gab, gabbling all the time. Won't let nobody get a word in edgewise. He's talking about the bloodhounds, how there's the bloodhounds, and they have that special powder that turns blood blue. Why can't you wash off blood? Because you can't. And the police know it. You can wash and you can wash, and there's always some left. Everybody knows that. I'm going to call the police, and I'm going to tell them to start looking for that stick in the woods. They got what they call stick bloodhounds to help them look. That's their first scene together where she kind of calls bullshit on it. But at the same time, she goes and asks her mom, like, mm -hmm. is there a powder that turns blood blue? And then they share a scene a little bit later in the third act where the revelation comes to Leroy that, oh, my God, this girl actually did kill this boy. And it has one of my favorite little exchanges about it when he's talking about the electric chairs for children. They got the little blue, chair blue for chairs boys. for little boys and pink chairs for little girls. Oh, so perfect. I it's so and it was so funny watching it because this this specific scene, because Rhoda, this is a scene where we can see that Rhoda is so smart. She seems so calculated the whole film. But she's still a simple-minded little girl who does not even realize that she got tricked into a confession. Like, the, like he literally went from saying, I pulled the shoes from your room. And she's like, no. I threw them in the furnace. <laughs> because I threw them right. You, you just told on yourself and you just so that you can get a rise out of this man mm -hmm. and you don't even realize that you and it's and it's so interesting to watch this girl who seems so calculated but clearly still has the mind of a small child yeah the only thing that's really going against rhoda is her lack of age and experience like if she would have been you almost feel like if it had if, you, if it had been a couple years later it would have been she could have gotten away with that no problem. Yeah, so that, that is a fantastic scene. And then we have some more dramatic scenes involving the adults, because there are parts of the movie where Rhoda just kind of disappears. She's out playing in the gazebo, she's, she's roller skating, or she's playing the piano in her room. So there's a lot of heavy scenes between Christine and Monica, as Christine really has no one to talk to that believes her. And it's funny, because the person that she really, you feel like you, she could talk to about this, is Hortense Daigle. But she can't. But you can sell in the performances and in the writing that she desperately wants to. 
there's some shots of her face where like her mouth is like literally just sealed shut with tension because she wants to say something and she can't. Those moments where there's always those in older movies, um, those moments where people like turn away and they've got like a handkerchief over their face. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you can tell that they're like trying desperately not to cry. And for some reason, and no one else in the room realizes that. And they're just like, what's going on? But she does it so masterfully where it really does look like, oh, I'm just a tired mom. I yes. just need a moment. But her face is so tight and so tense where, you know, like if she could just word vomit, she would, but she cannot it's so hard. And then as we get into the third act, there is an accident, question mark, <laughs> which, again, this movie is full of foreshadowing, but for a first-time viewer, it's skillfully done because you know that something's going on, you just don't know what. But then when you watch it a second time, you're like, oh, how did I not notice that right off the bat? So they kind of set it up with the Excelsior that Leroy sleeps on. You know, she's thrown it all over the grass after she got her present from her grandpa. And he talks about, I got to clean up your Excelsior. She's like, oh, I know what you do with that. You make yourself a bed down in the basement by the cellar, by the furnace, and you sleep there when you should be working. And then when you see her grab the matches, you're like, oh, shit. Is this, yeah. is she going to do it? What's going to happen? Like, I, you know, it's funny because when she grabbed the matches at first, I was like, oh, they've been talking about the incinerator. Like, what else is she about to burn? Like, you know, they've got an incinerator. Right. So I, I was like, what is, what's going on? But I immediately, as soon as I heard the screaming, it's like exactly. it just, light bulb, I was like, oh, no. And you're feeling exactly what Christina's feeling because the second she hears the screaming in the smoke, her first words were, I saw this coming. I saw this coming. She saw it coming. So so sad because she told her, she saw her with the matches, said, put them down. Yeah, she didn't. Okay. She didn't buy the story that Rhoda was giving her. She's like, oh, I'm going to go play jacks with them or pick up sticks or something. She's like, well, don't use those. Put those down. Right. Because at this point, she's like, I don't want her around anything. (laughs) So, but yeah, but so, so it is so sad, like knowing that. It, it's it's like a, a moment of like, ah, I could have stopped this, but like really, how could you have stopped it? Like you, you tried to. So here's my question for you, Nikki. As we think back and talk back on this film and you see all these moments where Christine is like trying to put the puzzle together and she has all these thoughts and all these dreams and feelings, she maybe actually was a bad seed. She has those thoughts in her head. She sees the calculations of Rhoda but she's lived such a, a solid life and maybe a deconstructed life from her parents that she's never acted on them. But by the way she deconstructs what Rhoda's doing, do you think that she probably has a little bit of that in her as well? You know, I think she might. I think that she is very concerned with appearances. Everything is appearance for her. And Again, I 50s. Think even- Hortense recognizes that everything is appearance for her. She even says like, you probably had your debut in society. Like I I see what kind of person you are. I know that you have to put on for people. I get it. And everyone gets it. One of the the first exchange that we see um, Christine have with Mrs. Fern, 
her concern is whether kids like Rhoda. Is she popular? It's like, yeah, do people want to hang out with her? Not like, do you think something's wrong with her? Like a heart-to-heart -heart conversation. Have you seen anything weird about her? She just wants to make sure that people don't think that anything is weird about her. And I think it's because she recognizes sort of those same qualities in herself that she's repressed. Um, the, the whole scene of her talking about when I don't I mean we don't know if really this happened or if this is just in her imagination but saying that she like ran out of the house and went and hid in the woods because mm -hmm. you know she was so scared of something you know and it's just the, like those small moments where you're like there is something hidden in her past mm -hmm. there's something hidden in her life that like we will never know about um much like there's something about Rhoda that other people will never know about because it's been hidden so well. So I think there's, I mean, there's got to be a little something in you for you to um... to recognize it. And also at the same time, it's like I, I, I'm not a mother, I'm I'm a father, but there is that thing where it's like she would rather take her own daughter's life than hey, let her I... daughter be arrested and be held responsible. She would rather let everyone in the world be wondering what really happened and give them no answers or closure than face the humiliation and the pain of having a daughter exposed. So her answer would be, maybe I should just put her to sleep. Yeah. And, and put her to sleep in one of the, like in one of the sweetest ways possible. Like reading her a bedtime story. story. <laughs> what a motherly way to like take your child out. That's such good writing, that whole scene. <laughs> it's so quiet, it's so peaceful, it's so serene, yet it's so painful, because you're like, oh my God, she's really going to do this. Yeah, and then, and the juxtaposition of like, one of the most violent acts mm -hmm. towards herself, like, it would have been very easy for her with that bottle of sleeping pills to mm -hmm. just do the same to herself. Mm -hmm. But having this very like peaceful moment for her daughter who had done these like many heinous things while like committing this bloody violent act on herself. Again, it goes to what you spoke about, the idea where she feels responsible for something that wasn't even her fault. It's almost like I deserve the ugly death. My daughter still needs to go out as gently and beautifully as possible. I want her to look good in her coffin. I want her to be remembered pretty. Again, it's that mother's love and that self-reflection of a failure, even though she was probably one of the best film mothers I've seen in any movie from any period. Honestly, like I I watched this and I, I, I thought to myself, this rivals any Hitchcock movie that I've seen any day. Like the the way that these women represented themselves on screen um i i i kept thinking when whenever hortense came on screen i kept thinking like she played this role better than like some men that i like i could have seen mm -hmm. a if there there was a drunk father mm -hmm. she like having a man play that role but like her, the rawness of how she played it it was just it was better than i was just like she's she's better than any man that i've seen on the screen the whole time i mean it, it, beautiful so beautiful yeah again like i said the, it's a female driven film it's a female driven movie and rightfully so like those performances i think are even more 
touching and painful and really get your emotions going because we're seeing a, a really broken, fragile, yet determined woman where if it was a man back in the 50s, more than likely it'd be like throwing fists, you know? Yeah. We know that Leroy gets burned alive by Rhoda and she just kind of skippity skips back into the house and starts playing her piano. That oh, wow. lovely little tune that we hear all throughout <laughs> the movie and you're never going to hear that tune again without thinking about this film. <laughs> Oh my gosh, it got louder. It really did get louder and louder. It was so disturbing. Get the horse! And that's a scene where Monica finally has her breakdown. And it's an epic breakdown. Oh, sorry, no, Christine has a breakdown. And it's an epic breakdown. And Monica's there just saying, oh, Leroy, what are we going to do? And Christine's pretty much like, no, Monica, something happened and I saw it coming. And I feel like Monica even feels like Christine's already suspecting Rhoda and just completely brushes it off. You need to go to bed. <laughs> You're tired. One of the most beautiful moments in that scene, and it's so short, but when Christine is having this breakdown and Monica's like, what's going on? Christine is banging on this door, telling her to play, stop playing. And Rhoda comes out and goes, Mom! Because that man is still screaming and the piano is going on and on while he's dying in the fire. Monica! a man scream. Monica! I don't want to see anybody now. It's Emery, dear. There's a flare-up in the basement. Tasker and the rest are putting it out now. I'm afraid poor Leroy's... Never mind. I saw him. I saw him run down the path and die. Can there be any worse than that? Seems he fell asleep on a, a bed he made out of excelsior. I suppose a cigarette set fire to the stuff. Please, please leave me alone. Monica, Monica. Like she's so concerned, but it's like, oh, this little girl. Ah, like I just, she's so like masterfully like playing everyone in this situation. And at this point, it should be clear that I mean, like I'm sure more than one person knows what is happening. Mm -hmm. But like, it's she's so good at what she does. It's so beautiful. And it's at that point in the third act that we're exposed to the actual ongoing and progressive villainy of Rhoda as we discover that this is not the first time she's killed before. We find out that there was a landlady from a previous apartment who loved Rhoda just as Monica does and promised her a little figurine when she passed away. And then there's a tragic accident where she slips down the stairs and she passes away and Rhoda gets a figurine. And that's when Christine starts putting things together. She's like, remember our landlady at the last apartment? And she was walking you to the park and she slipped down the ice. What happened? And Rhoda just simply says, 
Oh, I slipped on the ice and I fell against her and she went down the stairs. Is that all? Oh, no. I slipped on purpose. I slipped on purpose. And then she just smiles and walks away. So I think it's that moment that Christine finally realizes I'm going to take this next drastic step because this isn't something new. This is something that's happened before and will continue to happen. I, I, that was such a great moment. And the moments when Christine would be trying to like talk to Rhoda or get information and Christine Rhoda would go, I have the prettiest mother. I have have the the sweetest mother. mother. Oh my God. (laughs) And it's, it's those moments where it's like, all right, this girl, she's never going to stop. This is just, this is what she's like now. And she's figured out how to do it at such a young, young age. It's only going to get worse. So my mother exposed me to this film when I was probably six or seven years old. She was taking, she was taking um, night classes, trying to get a theater degree, get a drama degree. And she used to run lines with me. She would have me read lines, and she actually did the Hortense monologue in her school. But then we'd also read scenes together. So I was memorizing these lines because it was based on a play. So I was memorizing the play. And for years after that, whenever I wanted to like freak her out, I would just be like, I have the prettiest mother. I have the sweetest mother. <laughs> to this day, I still do it. I'm 40. <laughs> so this this movie really has a has a special place in my heart because my mom showed it to me when I was like seven years old. Oh, that's so perfect. I, I, and I, I, every time it happened, I loved it. And when she would say like, oh, what do you have for a basket full of kisses? Oh my God, get away, go. I go. have a basket of hugs. Of hugs. <laughs> and she like, that moment where she like kissed her mother's hand a bunch of times. Yes. It was, there, there were just so many like moments where it was like this little girl has an adult somewhere in her. It mm-hmm. just felt like like she has been here before. It, it, was, it was amazing. She knows how to do it. So it's funny that you mentioned Hitchcock earlier because the novel came out in 1952. It was turned into a stage play 1954 to 1955 and was brought to the screen in 1956 with the original cast. So... I've always thought one of my only complaints about this film is that some of the scenes seem a little theatrical, a little stagey. You know, the film mostly takes place in one location. And I think that's probably a holdover from the fact that this was the Broadway cast doing their show on film. And that less is more style of acting doesn't really apply to theatrical actors. It's hard for them to break when they come on film. So that's why I feel like the film does get some criticism for being a little exaggerated in scenes, especially Christine's breakdown. It's so theatrical and dramatic. I personally think it's fantastic, but I've read criticism about it. It's because they were the theater cast doing essentially their play on screen. Hitchcock wanted to make it. He couldn't get the rights to it but he desperately wanted to make this film in 1957. They wanted to do it sooner and cheaper, so um, the director, Marvin Leroy, ended up doing it instead. But Hitchcock desperately wanted to do it. And it makes me wonder what that would look like, because I think one of the things that helps this film is its simplicity in its shooting. The way it's shot allows the performances to speak for themselves, where Hitchcock is very visual. He's very stylish, sometimes to a fault. 
So I wonder if it actually would have probably been a detriment to the film if he actually did it. What do you think? I think um, I think you're right because the film, this film was about you know it's got about two hours of runtime almost, which is long and for 1956. Exactly, and a lot of it is dialogue, um, and a, a lot of it is you know things that are said and nuances in conversation. And because Hitchcock is such a visual person, either this film would have had to be a lot longer, or he probably would have had to cut some of the dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I think. Um, I don't, I can't see a place that it would have been, uh, would have been a good place to like cut some of these conversations because they all do seem like really important conversations to be had. I can't think of anything that was sort of just like, uh, just happenstance sort of like uh, everyday conversation. Yeah. There's no throwaway scenes and there's no filler. It's, it's yeah. all leading to something. Exactly. And even like there are, there are such small conversations that end up being callbacks to other things that you figure out later. Right. And they're all so important, you know? So to fill you in on a few more things about this film. So the other thing that's always bothered me is not the ending, but the kind of epilogue, they do a curtain call. So, Mm -hmm. so what happens, you know, in, in the long run, Rhoda survives her attempted murder by her mom. She she has her stomach pumped. They they save her life. And the first thing she does is she runs off back to the pond to look for the penmanship medal that her mom threw back in the water in case there was an investigation. And while she's looking for this medal, lightning strikes the pier and drowns her. Fine. I love that ending. You know, fade to black, roll credits. However, they run a theatrical style curtain call. A voice comes on the screen and says, wait a minute, please. Let's meet our wonderful cast. And then they introduce them one by one and they take a bow to the camera. And once they reach the last two, Nancy Kelly and Patty McCormick, she grabs Rhoda and gives her a spanking. Spanking? A spanking. A fun spanking. So I, (laughs) I get it. I get it. It's 1956 people probably weren't even expecting to see this kind of movie, let alone an ending that really shocks you and jolts you. You know, (laughs) the producers are like, we got to brighten this up a little bit. So the reason why they did that is the theatrical version actually ends with a line, at least we still have Rhoda. Because what happens is Christine actually dies from her wound and Rhoda lives and the curtain call happens right after Monica says, at least we still have Rhoda. Rhoda lives, and she obviously gets away with it. So then they do the curtain call and the spanking to kind of lighten the mood for the evening because it's a theatrical performance. You kind of want to leave a little energized. However, I felt the film would have been much better served if they would have just fade to black right. after the, the lightning strikes. Honestly, and you know what? I I felt like, you know, the very last screen is like basically like, no spoilers. Like, yes. don't go tell anybody about the end of... If you had just had the end of that film and then that shot of don't go tell anybody about the ending of that film, I would have I would have been like, that's it. 10 out of 10. <laughs> that that would have been a perfect end to the film. I... And I... You know, don't they do... Didn't they do a... Um, a like a credit sequence at the beginning? Didn't they? They didn't. They Well, they do like they a little introduction thing. It wasn't like Psycho where Hitchcock told the audience don't tell people the ending and like he wouldn't let people in after the first 10 minutes, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, one of the things was, is they didn't want that original 
ending from the play because the production code of the time said there had to be a crime and punishment clause where crime and punishment couldn't be left unsettled. Unanswered, yeah. So that's why they had to kill her with the lightning. But yeah, just kill her with the lightning. We don't need that curtain call. That's my, right. my really my only complaint of this film. <laughs> I, I I did feel felt like at the end it, it's um there's a a movie that I just recently watched. It's like a slasher film, um and it's a very gruesome slasher film. And the ending credits, it's just all of the people who are in the movie, and it's like just like a fun roll of them on the beach, just hanging out like right. while they were shooting, I guess. And it it, it it's that same kind of feeling of like. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> like, we I, decapitated like, you in the second act, but here's your chance to come back and wave to the camera. Like it's like they want us to know that they're like all people, but it's like right. okay, I know. I just watched yeah, the I movie. I, I just watched it. the movie. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, again, a hugely influential film, actually remade several times. So, I mean, I you could you could say that this was like the origin of films like The Good Son with Macaulay Culkin. There was a bunch of like British films in the 60s and 70s, like some of the Hammer films where there were evil children and things like that. So it was remade in 1985. Uh, Blair Brown played Christine, and I forget the young girl who played Rhoda. But the significant character in that version is David Carradine of Kill Bill played Leroy. And in my opinion, he killed it. And they actually make his death scene a little bit more gruesome. Like we actually see him on fire and we see him, you know, there's an artistic flair to not seeing it in the original version, just seeing the smoke and hearing the screen. And the face and seeing um, Christine's face. Yeah. But at the same time, that's probably because that's how it was done in the play. You know, you didn't see anyone on fire. You just probably saw smoke outside the window allowing for that scene to play out. Yeah. And then they made it again in 2018 with a male lead. They had Rob Lowe playing the Christine role. And I haven't seen that version. I only found out about it when I was doing research for this. I'm going to go back and check it out. It didn't have great reviews, but I'm a it film a enthusiast. Film. It was I got to yeah. I got to see it. I got to see what they did <laughs> yeah. with it, you know. And I like Rob Lowe. I want to see what he does with it. Yeah, I I I he's as it's one I I'm sure it's one of those things where it's um it's it's, it's like I said there's never a bad movie. Exactly. <laughs> and then there are actually two unofficial sequels to this film where Patty McCormick actually returned, this time in her 40s. So the first one was called Mommy, which I've seen, 1995. It was shot on video, and it stars Jason Patrick of The Exorcist as like a detective. And the story of that one is we have this lead character who's just called Mommy. We're assuming it's Rhoda. It plays like it's Rhoda. And... Mm. Her daughter is kind of an underachiever in school. So mommy now is taking out teachers and principals and people who she feels is holding her daughter behind in hopes that she can make her look better and excel. So even though it's not an official sequel, we all know what they're trying to do. You know, they're trying to say that Rhoda grew up, had this daughter who's not perfect. So she's going to make her perfect give her the life that she needs That's yes wild. and then there was a mommy too which i haven't seen because i can't find it <laughs> it again super obscure i'd probably have to dig through the bargain bins to find it but i was gonna say i'm surprised you can't find it <laughs> yeah and i can i i i like to think that you i can find pretty up. much anything 
So yeah, so that's interesting. I mean, again, Patty McCormick had a very impressive career in television and independent film. I don't think she ever matched the notoriety that she got for this film, and she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for this film. Mm -hmm. So she kind of started that trend of children being nominated for films because not long after this, we saw Patty Duke get the nomination for The Miracle Worker, and then we saw Tatum O'Neill for Paper Moon. So this all kind of started with Patty McCormick where people were like, wow, this girl's performance is not related to her age. Yeah, Yeah. we're gauging her as an actor, not as a child actor. Yeah, there were many times watching her in, in this film where I thought to myself, like, there, she's out acting some of the adults of that time, of our time. 100%. Um, I, and her, the moment where she's um, sort of like confessing mm-hmm. to what happened with her and Claude, I was stuck to the screen. The best line and of the movie, she- and it's, it's the intro to my opening theme song, is, I hit him with my shoe again! Shoe <laughs> again! <laughs> but I found him. And I told him I did it with my shorts. He didn't give me the medal. But he shook his head and said no. So I hit him the first time. Then he took off the medal and gave it to me. And then what happened? Tried to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again. But he kept on crying and making a noise. And I was afraid somebody would hear him. So I kept on hitting him. She's so like it's, it's so it's like she's so passionate about telling this story, but not because she's like upset about what happened. Just like she's upset that she didn't get that medal. Like she's she's like trying to explain like yeah. desperately. Like he could have just given it. To he could have just given it to me. And why did he have to keep why. crying? He didn't have to keep crying. Yeah. Like why did he try to come back up and say he was gonna blame me? No, like I've got to end this. Yeah. I, And the other thing that I wanted to quickly touch on that I loved that when she, when um, Rhoda got out of the hospital and she started talking about how Monica had that bird Mm -hmm. and she goes, yeah, we're going to go up to the roof where like nobody can see us. And sunbathe. (laughs) Yeah. This moment of just like, oh my God. She hasn't even learned. It's been less than 24 hours. She's hardcore. I love her. I like to think I'm a level-headed guy, but there's part of me where I'm like, girl knows what she wants. She ain't afraid like, to get it. This little girl, is, she, would be, she would be a CEO somewhere. Like, if she, if oh, she God. wasn't a complete sociopath and a murderer, she would own somebody's company. Right? She'd be, <laughs> she'd be running Amazon right now. She would be. She would have. Meta would be. She, let me she would be um rhoda growing up is elizabeth holmes that's it oh shit except smarter <laughs> except yes much smarter. <laughs> she could have got away with that absolutely she would have found a way <laughs> she'd have killed somebody <laughs> well you know uh this film again like people call it campy people call it theatrical there's a lot of people that don't take it very seriously then there's people who love it so i i consider this film cult worthy And it's an interesting thing. I have a lot of homosexual friends who love this movie. There is a huge following in the gay community, and a lot of them pair it with Mommy Dearest. 
I would I would raise you adding whatever happened to Baby Jane to okay. that. So since you mentioned <laughs> that film, that's the next one that you and I are going to talk about because I just yes! rewatched it the other night because my, my fiancé hadn't seen it. And I'm like, oh, this is my next conversation with, with Nikki. Oh, I'm so excited. I just watched that movie like two weeks ago because I was going to cover it and did not because I swiped, I swapped it out for The Wicker Man. Uh-huh. So I'm so happy I didn't. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you so can still talk about it, but I definitely want to have that conversation with you. The whole reason we watched it is because I had a conversation with her that I said that Fatal Attraction ripped off pretty much every film from the 50s, 60s, and 70s about obsession, about diabolical people. And so when I was saying that, oh, well, the whole bunny in the pot scene is the parakeet in the silver dish scene from whatever happened to baby Jane. And she's like, what's that? I'm like, oh, well, we're watching this tonight. And then when we watched it again, I'm like, oh, this is my next episode with Nikki. So I'm so glad you mentioned that. Great minds think alike. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. 10 out of 10 would recommend. I'm so happy that we're going to talk about that movie together because it's one of my favorites. So what would you say your favorite things about this film that would make it a cult-worthy classic? What would you what would be your selling points to people who've never seen it? Um, I think that if you're looking for a film that you can bank on the acting really drawing you in, um, even for an older film, it I think it stands up against any movie that has come out today. Um, the acting is wonderful, especially the performances by all the women, especially the performance by the youngest woman in the cast. Mm-hmm. Um, it's respectable. And I think um, if you really wanted to see um, good performances from good people and um, a plot that really does surprise you, in the end, even though it gives you most of the plot in the middle, the like the last bite of the sandwich is still really good. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. So I think this is a movie that's cult worthy because literally from beginning to end, even if you know what's happening, it's still a wonderful film. Awesome. Nikki, thank you so much for discussing this with me. Do you want to shout out your podcast and your socials really fast for everyone listening? Sure. My podcast is Here's Looking at You Film, a uh, vintage a podcast for vintage cinephiles with modern sensibilities. Um, it drops every Wednesday mid-afternoon. Um, and uh, you can find me most of the time. I'm on Twitter at film underscore Nikki. I'm there all the time. But you can also find me on Instagram at at H-L-A-Y-F-P-O-D. Um, and uh, all of my socials have my link tree links. So you can find me all over the interwebs. Awesome. And for our listeners, I hope you had a great time with us today. Next week's episode is going to be 1965's Who Killed Teddy Bear? starring Sal Mineo and Juliet Prowse. I will have a soon-to-be-announced guest for that, but make sure you watch that film. You can find it on Tubi and on YouTube right now. So if you want a spoiler-free experience, check it out then. And Nikki, again fantastic time i can't wait to talk about whatever happened to baby jane absolutely i cannot wait to talk to your crowd again and i hope that everyone um loves this man as much as i do um, and enjoys this pod as much as i do as well once again check out here's looking at you film podcast nikki i will talk to you later i love you good afternoon good evening and good night cheers